there. You're listening to episode four of the Down on the Farm podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Grosnick. The Down on the Farm podcast is a companion to the Down on the Farm newsletter available for subscription on Substack, where we cover all things minor league baseball with a professional and data-driven point of view. Uh, Today's guest is Noah Woodward of the Advanced Scout newsletter, also on Substack, and we're going to be talking a little bit to Noah about some of his latest uh, writings on pickoffs, the running game, uh, lots of other scout-related topics, but... um, Noah, it's really great to have you on. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. Great to be here. So before we get into what you've been doing with your newsletter, uh, The Advanced Scout, which uh, I'll just plug it up front first, free Substack newsletter. No reason not to subscribe to it. Everybody who's listening to this should go out and do it right now. But let's talk a little bit about your background first. So you uh, were a writer and then you moved into private working for teams and now you're back in the public sphere. So tell us a little bit about how you got into baseball and what your journey's kind of been to this point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I I think like a lot of uh, people started to work for teams uh, in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. Uh, I saw saw other people with uh, a non-playing background uh, able to to get in and, and to work in baseball operations and, and to do that through uh, writing uh, and or the use of publicly available data uh, and information. So um, I started to, to do that in college and um, kind of just plugged away at, at um, articles that I, I hoped might sort of catch teams' attention. I had some really patient editors, um, Brian, including you, I think. <laughs> really early on, uh, beyond the box score, and uh, just really had some some rough work that I I, I continued to, to kind of work at and push at, and um, eventually uh, that led to uh, my first internship in baseball um, through through some of that writing uh, and a resume drop at, at a baseball conference uh, called Saber Seminar. So. Um, that was kind of the, the way I, it's not a common, it is a common way. in. I would say, um, I wouldn't say it's, it's sort of a fair way. And I think there are a lot of issues with sort of hiring equity in baseball. And if, you know, if I had any student debt, if I sort of couldn't pay my own way to that conference, participate in that resume drop, um, you know, none of that would have happened. So, um, I think it's, it's gotten a little bit better. Um, but still a lot of work to do sort of from the, uh, from the hiring perspective and, and how to break into baseball. But, my way was definitely through writing. Yeah. I definitely hear that. And I, I think a lot of people share your viewpoint on that, that it's, there's been a lot of inequities in hiring in baseball up to this point. And it's great when somebody like yourself can break through from the writing community, but like, there's a lot of structural uh, items that, that prevent everybody who, who deserves an opportunity doing that to, to get there. So I, I, I definitely like that you called that out and, uh, Hopefully it's something that's been able to be addressed a little bit with some of these you know, fellowships that, that MLB is doing right now and some other opportunities. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very kind and, and conscientious of you to call that out. So, so after you broke in and you, you did a lot of great writing, again, like you mentioned, you wrote at Beyond the Box Score when I was the managing editor over there. You've written for a number of locations, Baseball Prospectus, others. And so then you got into your internship and, and started working for a major league team without getting into too many specifics because, you know, we can't, but let's talk a little bit more about what that role was like and what you kind of learned from that experience. Yeah, the, the first uh, internship was in in R and D or baseball analytics um, with the Baltimore Orioles, and uh, it was a really small group, but a really really bright group. And I, I just I felt like I got to absorb so much, and, and it was really nice to be in a, in a smaller group um, to to get some exposure. That I think I think internships across the game really vary and. 
in sort of what you get plugged into and what um, you're able to to sort of learn and get access to. And and that was a really great starting point. Um, I wasn't there too long, unfortunately, um, or, or fortunately in, in terms of um, getting a full-time gig. That that step happened really out of sheer luck. Uh, the, the Atlanta Braves were hiring for a position in the clubhouse based in the clubhouse to travel with the team to be sort of a uh, analytics or advanced scouting liaison um, that, that provided direct support to the coaching staff. So it was through uh, sort of a connection in, uh, between those two uh, baseball ops groups that I got that first position um, full time with the Braves and then did that for a few years traveling. Uh, and doing advanced scouting work. That's very cool. So that that sounds like a, just a really interesting opportunity because it sounds like you were doing that at a time when not every team was was having that kind of communications between analytics and the coaching staff. So that that must have been a pretty cool experience to have. And um, it's it's been really interesting to see ball clubs and organizations kind of go in the more of that direction over the last several years. So that's very that's very cool. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. At that time, there were probably only a handful of teams that had someone traveling full time that was kind of analytics or advanced scouting focused. Um, so when I got hired, I would say it was, it was a little bit more unstructured in how it would work out. Um, and we actually had a change in the coaching staff. Our manager was fired about a month into that that experience. So that that was all a big change and adjustment. Um, but uh, I it was an amazing experience to learn and and as you mentioned, now it's it's really common practice for teams, and you're even seeing uh, members added to the coaching staff that have that advanced scouting focus as well. So let's get into advanced scouting. You just called it out. So now that you are back in the public sphere, you've got this newsletter on Substack, the Advanced Scout, where tell me a little bit about what kind of you're trying to do with the newsletter, and then maybe we can get into some specifics about what you've been writing about recently, which is some really cool, really fascinating stuff that that just doesn't appear a lot um, in public facing baseball writing right now. Yeah. So I, I called it the advanced scout. It, it, that term kind of refers to the work that goes into uh, preparing for, for each night's game that, that every team goes through. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of the background I had at the time. Um, that's when I think about what interests me about baseball, that's kind of the lens that that does. Um, so I think it's that, and it's also sort of this concept of, preparing uh, your own club for uh, sort of opportunities to maximize strengths and weaknesses uh, of your own players and put them in, in uh, opportunities to succeed. So um, when I sort of think about watching a game, I think about it from that perspective, you know, what is, what is each player trying to do and, and why are they trying to do that? Um, so I think there are a lot of ways to cover that. And to be honest, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what kind of formats work best on the newsletter, but um, that's the lens that I'm trying to work through. And, uh, sort of uh, thinking that, that, you know, others might, uh, I haven't seen a lot of other content out there that, that kind of comes at it from that lens. Yeah, no, I think that the way you kind of called it out on the, the about page of your sub stack is it's marrying together a lot of different things, whether it's like player development, communication of data, um, actual scouting and, and video scouting. So it seems like you're, you're trying to do a lot of things, but all in that kind of purview of preparing players to be successful uh, you know, improving performance and, and getting them them ready for the best possible performance when they get out on the field is that is that pretty fair? Yeah, and I think you're right that it's it's multidisciplinary. It's it's video. It is uh, R and D. It's it's all that kind of uh, stuff, kind of distilled into sort of what how you combine that into 
what are, what are the key points to, to focus on. So hopefully you know, I can try to distill some of that in, into uh, something that's, that's easier to interpret than something more dense that, that you might see produced, um, you know, elsewhere or, or just in, in the data or on video itself. No, that's, that's perfectly like aligned to the way that this data is coming out to players and organizations, whether it's minor leagues, major leagues, that's, that's how you need to present it in order for it to get uptake. So, so I think that's a great transition into, you know, you posted a couple of pieces on your newsletter and then started writing about the running game a little bit more when you're talking about the pickoffs and specifically the, uh, the Mets secret pickoff play. So the Mets tried to um, kick everybody off the field so that they could perform a secret pickoff play. And you were one of the first, you know, public facing writers who was like, you know, I think I've got a point of view on this. This is what I think is happening here. Here's some ideas about it. And you've written about the running game now a few times um, for your newsletter. And it's been absolutely interesting, fascinating stuff. And I think it was taking this from a perspective that a lot of public facing analysts who don't have your background wouldn't, wouldn't be ready to write about this in the detail and the way that you did, which is pretty easy for consumption. So I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about what you're seeing as far as these changes to the running game go based on these rule changes that have taken place in minor league baseball now are taking place in major league baseball, what these rule changes are going to look like and what the kind of the, the knock-on effects are that you're, you're already seeing as we get into spring training. Yeah, no, I appreciate that also. Um, I, I, you know, I definitely, when I started a newsletter, I definitely didn't anticipate that I would be writing a bunch of articles about base running and about uh, pickoff moves uh, to, to start things out. But um, when I thought about the new rules and I looked around at what was being written, I just didn't see a lot being written about the, the pickoff rule specifically. Um, and, and the pickoff rule really jumped out as something that I thought, you know, was potentially the most impactful of, of everything that was coming when you pair it with the pitch clock and everything else that was coming. So um, I, I, I kind of expanded on my interest in, in the pickoff rule and uh, began to think about, well, if I were uh, preparing for this from, from a club side, you know, from a, a, the role that I used to have, what kind of strategies would I be thinking about and what would I be looking around at other teams uh, to do? And one of those kind of off the wall topics was what I think the Mets were, were potentially working on, which was sort of thinking about uh, from kind of a game theory perspective, uh, how to kind of push the rule to its limit. Um, and, and just for, as context, that, that rule is uh, sort of two pickoffs per batter faced. Uh, so pushing that to its limit would, would potentially mean uh, using that that first pickoff and then uh, really not being hesitant to show that you'll use the second one uh, and really wind the clock all the way down on the runner uh, in a way that that you would think teams typically wouldn't want to try to push, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And to me, what's most fascinating about this rule change is that it seems as if the pitch clock and the pickoff rules were kind of more designed to put some guardrails on the pitcher and from what I've been seeing in the um, in the spring training games that we've seen so far is, in many ways, I think it's affecting the base runner, the hitter, a little bit as much, if not more, than the pitcher in a lot of these situations. So you've got teams that are working around this pickoff rule. They're seeing what they can do to mess with timing for both the hitter and the base runner. They're, um, you know, this idea that you had the the 
what I think it was the hard fourth down count uh, play that the that you were um, suggesting where you use two pickoffs and then potentially you have a do or die pickoff throw to first base that you run the clock down on on a hard count by the first baseman. There's some different options here, but I was fascinated to find that that it doesn't seem like it's it's just affecting the pitcher in these situations. That there's a lot of effects on negative effects, um, I should say, or at least game game performance negative effects on the base runner and potentially the hitter as much as there is the pitcher. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I think for the hitter, there were uh, some quotes you saw early from from pitchers saying, you know, that that it's going to affect hitters more than pitchers, and I think. I think that's definitely true. And I think it's true more so for pitchers that are really prepared for it. And uh, someone like Max Scherzer was really thinking about this in the off season and came in, uh, you know, attempting to use it. And I just saw recently, I think that uh, I read that, that major league baseball adjusted its rule to prevent him from doing what he did in his last start, which was kind of quick pitching um, hitters who, signal that they're ready before they're, they're actually ready is how I would describe it in the box. But yeah, I think, I think there are definitely issues for the hitter and then for the base runner. I think one thing I didn't anticipate is that, um, you know, that, that there's actually a lot of time on the clock. If pitchers get ready early, get set early, uh, you can hold the ball for a long time, which has a big effect on a base runner. Uh, and that's something that I didn't think teams would continue to be able to use. Um, yeah. But the pitch clock, if you use it correctly, does does allow you to. And I, I find it also very interesting that some of these rules are coming up from the minor leagues. Um, and so teams like the Mets have brought in Reed Brignac as a kind of like a guidance uh, coach for for bringing some of these rules around the pitch clock or around how, how things are done a little bit differently now from the minor leagues. I find it really interesting because it seems like there's a gap here between you have players who have experienced some or part of these roles, either in the minors or in an independent league. You have your major league players who have been in the league for a while, who this is potentially very new to uh, a complete change of pace. You have pitchers who have established themselves at the major league level, who no longer can do their toe tap, like Kevin Gaussman, for example. And they have to adjust their delivery significantly in order to try to adapt to the new rules. And there's kind of this like shadow class of major league baseball players now who aren't as prepared as some of the minor leaguers who are coming up um, and maybe struggling with some of these rule changes. So having this kind of information about what's going on is going to be like it is for them, like it is for most of us, where it's kind of like this is a new um, situation for those of us who haven't been following minor league baseball as clearly or these rule changes in different contexts. And the players are having to get caught up on this too on the fly, which is really kind of fascinating. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty cool. I think you know you mentioned Reed Brignac. He played with us at the in the Braves. Um, I think 2016 it was um, for someone like him to come in and for the Mets to bring him in as an expert on the rules, who's sort of uh, observed and and been really thoughtful about uh, how I'd imagine based on overlapping with him and, and how thoughtful he was mm-hmm. um, about these new rules and how to how to use them uh, at the major league level for people that have had no exposure. Um, I, I think it's cool. And I think it's, it's, it's also, you don't see often that younger players have an advantage over veterans at something in, in major league baseball. I think that's rare. Um, and, and I was just watching the WBC last night thinking that even those, those big league players that are playing in the WBC aren't even getting the spring training exposure to the rules. So they're going to be even further behind, uh, than, than they would be otherwise. Um, but yeah, you bring up Kevin Gosman, I think is, is the perfect example of, of a veteran who was hit by the rules from every 
kind of angle. He uh, had that toe tap in his delivery, which uh, Major League Baseball is highlighting as an issue with the pitch clock and will be called a balk now. So uh, I, I heard that that was highlighted as an example, you know, back in December, but I guess communication didn't get out to him. So he showed up at spring training and, and kind of became aware of that. It's my understanding um, mm. and, and had to work on it right away. Um, as he was working on that, his new delivery, um, I saw the other day is, is just, it's slower to the plate. So he has to deal with the uh, brand new delivery. He needs to now speed that delivery up uh, to, to deal with the pitch clock and to deal with some of the rules that are, that are helping base runners out all at the same time. And he only has, you know, two or three weeks to do it. So um, yeah, it definitely puts veterans kind of behind the ball a little bit. It's, it's interesting because you, you hear from folks who may not be as involved in the day-to-day of player development or, you know, what, what goes into some of these mechanical changes. And it may seem like a simple task to remove the toe tap or, change your leg kick or something like that in your pitching delivery. But I mean, these are things that take more than a full off season in many cases to make part of your regular routine and adjust your mechanics and then all the knock-on effects that come to that. So it's, it's just absolutely fascinating to see people try to do this on the fly, even though these are you know, world-class athletes, the best in the world, making these subtle mechanics changes where in, in Gaussman's case, it's, it's not even that subtle. It's, it's a pretty significant change to his delivery, but it's just wild to me to see that he's still able to be moderately effective and keep that, um, you know, keep his velocity and keep all of these, you know, his, his pitch shape in a lot of these cases while adapting his delivery on the fly in spring training. I mean, that's, that's pretty astounding to see. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's I think it's like selfishly fun to watch as a fan, right? It's like, yeah, for um, sure. not, maybe not the most fun for the player, but, but I think you're right. I mean, I'm not, not a pitching mechanics expert at all. Um, but I, I think to, to dismiss, you know, just getting rid of a toe tap is something small and minor to get over. I don't think is is fair to a pitcher to say because for Gosman, it really kicked off, you know, this big leg kick that he had. Uh, and he still has that big leg kick, but just the rhythm just looks a little different to it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the other day he was using that new delivery. He also tried a bunch of things, uh, pickoff related things. He picked off a runner in second with a great timing play, which, you know, I think you're seeing more of those come back into play. Uh, he, he's definitely got a, a good move over to first, uh, and he's messing with timing a little bit too. So, um, he's definitely, you know, an example of someone who's, who's learning a lot or not learning a lot, but applying a lot. I think that maybe you, you have to dust off work that you did as a minor leaguer, uh, to, to use again as a, as a big leaguer. And then to kind of like play off that a little bit. So you talked about he's going to first, there's timing plays, there's um you also wrote quite a bit about the back pick and recently about what catchers are back picking hitters a little bit more successfully in previous years are we going to see more of that this year with the limited number of pickoff throws do you want to talk a little bit about what some of that research was that you did into back picks and what you're seeing from catchers how they set up and how it affects their back picks who's who's great at it who just likes to throw over a lot Wilson Contreras um tell us a little bit more about what you found when exploring that yeah, yeah, I think Wilson Contreras is saying that <laughs> summarizes it. Um, but he, um, yeah, I, I think you know, even as someone who worked on the club side, to do kind of a dive on on back picks is is not something I really thought about doing. Um, but I saw you know two or three different articles of teams mentioning it that they they wanted to focus on that this year. Um, so uh, I, I dug into it a little bit, and you know, I, I think the the amount of effort and the amount of 
sort of sacrifice that you give up as a catcher uh, in, in setup in, in called strikes and, um, you know, that the concentration that it takes to, to set up for a back pick, it, it's, it's sort of a cost that's, uh, I don't think, uh, has really been assessed too much because you didn't see too many back picks, but it, it, I think if we see more of them, you'll see more of a, a question of, well, is that trade-off really worth it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there were less than 10 successful back picks at first base last year, tons of throws. Um, a bunch of throws that ended up in the outfield and allow the runner to advance. Um, and, and none of that can be the fault of the catcher. It can be the first baseman not being prepared. It can be a bunch of different things. You need a perfect pitch to, to execute it on, um, you know, to get, to get yourself into that, um, that side of the plate to, to throw it over to, to first base or, or to third base. Um, and so it's just a lot that has to go right and, and a lot that can go wrong. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because I don't think, you know, casual observers myself, included at times, really thought of the back pick as a set play. They kind of thought that, oh, catcher must just generally sense that this is a good time for a back pick. And they're just able to use their outrageous athleticism, which you know we don't really think about with catchers a lot, but catchers are extraordinarily athletic, especially some of the best of them, uh, to go to first base and try to get uh, catch a runner napping or, you know, take advantage of too long of a lead or a secondary lead or something like that. And this idea that if you're setting up in preparation for a set play back pick, you're not perhaps framing the ball the way you want to. You're out of position. If the runner goes to second, you've got to throw down to second. I mean, there's a lot of, again, you know, there's so many small things that your newsletter and what you've been writing about has, I think made people aware of that are really interesting little things that, that can have a big effect on, on the game. And so that, that's been something that I was personally kind of like really interested in is this idea of, okay, if pitcher, if catchers are going to go to the back pick more often, is it going to affect their blocking? Is it going to be able to affect how they present pitches? Is it going to reduce pop times or give them more of an arm workout during the game and have them be, you know, have there be even knock on effects to their hitting? Um, there's just so much going on whenever you have a rule change like this and MLB is implemented like six at once. Um, it's just so many moving parts that, that having a view of one specific area of it, like you're doing with your newsletter has been like really enlightening, I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think you're right to highlight some of these things. I, I think, you know, what I'd read about backpicks was sort of uh, indicating that, you know, backpicks are, are going to be the solution to, to the running game and, you know, to unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, as, as context, backpicks really would would only target secondary leads, um, really. So if if you think secondary leads are going to grow, then sure, backpicks might work. Um, but the you know the act of of setting up this play is, and uh, as you mentioned there, it is a set play. It requires a catcher to potentially even adjust you know where you're calling a pitch uh, to get on that right side of the plate, and then signal the first baseman to get over to receive the throw. It just requires a lot of, a lot of involvement. It takes away from a pitcher just executing a pitch to a spot. So it's, it's on the spectrum of, of kind of wasting a pitch uh, for a pitch out. And, you know, almost you'd say. With all that being said, I think Kbert Ruiz should do it more often because uh, that was awesome. <laughs> the video of him walking it off for the uh, nationals with his backpack. And I, I, based on what you had showed in your newsletter, he had, he made four outs by by backpicks on 14 throws. I, I, it looks like he may actually, it could have been luck, but man, like it looks like if somebody's going to do it, that's the guy you want to, you want to be trying to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You're right to call that out. I think no one had had a better success rate than that. I think he went on a tear and, you know, the nationals 
uh, didn't maybe have a lot going right in the middle of the summer last year, but Heber Uri's back picks were definitely a, a, a highlight and a, a game changer. Um, but definitely he's the, he's not the norm from, from what I saw and taking a look at it. Yeah, you're in your stats. You had um, uh, shown that Wilson Contreras is kind of the guy who uh, you said uh, it, there were some quotes that Ollie Marmol was talking about, like, oh, yeah, that's his thing. He's really good at it. But he threw over like twice as much as everybody else in baseball and still only were able to get two guys. So, I mean, that's that's a lot of effort for a relatively low reward. Now, I don't know, with the Cardinals particular setup, they have that great defense. I, I'm not sure what you want to uh, what you want to give up in terms of being able to uh, hurt the pitcher's ability to let him just put it in play and put it in front of that defense versus uh, trying to get an extra out at first base. I, I, I'd be interested to see what the data says to support how frequent a back pick should be done. Like you know, we have our our baseline for success rate for steals, for example. I wonder if we can come up with something like that for uh, for back picks to give us an idea of whether or not a catcher should should really be trying it that often. Yeah, definitely. I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, Contreras specifically what how he, you know, adapts in changing teams because he's been with the Cubs for so long. You know, will, will his setup change? You know, he's been – one thing I'm trying to write about right now is – a lot of the, the catchers you see don't backpick that often are uh, use a knee down stance. So they get down uh, on a knee to receive pitches and it helps you get, get that low strike more often. Uh, Contreras has been one of the few holdouts in that uh, going to a knee to, uh, to receive. And it's, it definitely helps him, you know, get in a position to backpick, but, you know, again, at the cost of losing called strikes. So uh, in watching him recently, he's still uh, using that same approach this year, um, but it'll be interesting to see if, uh, you know, the Cardinals continue to encourage, uh, you know, aggressive throws behind runners. Um, but but we'll see. I think, um, you know, from a prep perspective, teams will have access to information um, on runners lead sizes. And I think uh, you'll start to see there are going to be runners who forget that, you know, they have this bigger primary lead and they take a bigger secondary lead. And then they they really forget where they are uh, and put themselves in a position to get back picked. Um, and so I think, you know, you'll be able to sort through that. That's not going to be publicly available, but, you know, if teams are trying to take advantage of some of that information, that's a way you can do it and, and find these runners who uh, sort of forget about the rule change and, and wander too far off the bag. And then to take it a little bit back to the, our minor league baseball and player development bent that we have it down on the farm, it'll be really interesting to see if there's going to be some changes into, you know, for example, catching development or for pitching development, trying to get pitchers uh, quicker to the plate, even quicker to the plate than they already are. Or with catchers, maybe we're looking at something where back picks are going to be a little bit more of a focus when catchers are coming up through the minors and trying to develop their skills. Maybe with the advent of ABS and AAA, maybe we'll be seeing less of a focus on receiving and, and framing and more of a focus on some of these other items, like being able to control the running game. So I think there's a, a lot of possibility for change in the, uh, in the player dev and the, uh, the scouting field to, to kind of keeping an eye on some different skills, or maybe the skill balance is going to change a little bit for so long. There haven't, there really hasn't been too many poor framers in baseball among catchers recently. Everybody has uh, raised their game because it's been found to be so important and it bared out in the analytics. Maybe we'll start to see a move a little bit more away from that where catchers will be asked to do some different things behind the plate instead of uh, focusing so much on their receiving. 
yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And you all down on the farm are going to be in a perfect position to, to evaluate that. I think, um, you know, with these rule changes coming, that's, that's where they're first rolled out. I think as you, you evaluate minor league players and the video that you all roll out on the, on the newsletter, you'll start to see some of those techniques in action. I think you mentioned ABS, um, affecting the culture, the automatic call strike zone affecting the way that, uh, the position is played. I think it's going to be a really big one. I think there's an analogy, you know, five years ago, uh, the twins, um, were working with their catchers on, uh, you know, maximizing the, the amount of called strikes they get by going down to two knees to receive and, and doing this really awkward looking position. Um, you didn't see it in the major leagues, but, um, I think, you know, that was an example of something being rolled out at the minor league level that, you know, if, if the rules were to continue in that direction, if, you know, the value continued to be there, you wouldn't see that made its way up to the major league level. Uh, Ryan Jeffers is a good example of someone who, who came up that way and is now one of the top, you know, receivers, framers in baseball. Um, with ABS, I think you'll see different skills highlighted in catchers, definitely. Well, I mean, this has been awesome to get to talk to you, Noah. Um, I, I feel like we've got some complementary products between the Down on the Farm newsletter and your Advanced Scout newsletter, but the fact that you've been able to go into such kind of like detail and from your particular perspective um, has been really cool. And it's not just about base running. So I, I, I don't want to point uh, folks over to your uh, to your sub stack and say, it's just covering this rule change. There's been a lot of interesting stuff in um, your most recent five takes column on there. That's been really cool. So I would highly advise everybody to go over and check it out, but Noah, is there anything else you'd like to uh, plug today? Anything else you'd like to shout out before I let you go? No, no, I appreciate you having me on. And I've really enjoyed reading and, and all the work that you've all done at, at uh, down on the farm. So uh, keep it up and, and thanks for having me. No, no problem. Thank you so much. So that'll do it for today's show. Um, I'm really, really excited that we've gotten to have four of these shows so far. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please check us out on your podcast provider. Subscribe to the podcast, rate and review, five-star rating. We're now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, the big podcast platforms. I'm sure they'll aggregate us elsewhere. Um, and please go ahead and visit us at downonthefarm.substack.com or on Twitter at downonthefarm12. You can get a subscription at both monthly or an annual rate. You'll find that we're pretty affordable way to keep on the cutting edge of minor league baseball research. So uh, with that, I'm Brian, and we'll see you next time on the Down on the Farm podcast.